This is Without Compromise, a show that explores what happens when you won't settle for anything less than your crazy ideas. We'll talk to athletes, founders, adventurers, and entrepreneurs of all kinds about living without compromise. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Welcome to the show. We're programmed for survival, so our instinct is to give up on these situations, to move away from them. I thought if I didn't sign up for that race, that I was just going to disappear. It doesn't have to be these big, huge things that everyone thinks you need to do to make a difference. Everybody thought Garrett was pretty crazy to leave his high-rise office job to join a brewery, something that was not cool or trendy at the time. This is the 80s we're talking about. And it was way less prestigious. But ever since Garrett had traveled to Europe and seen all the different styles of beer that were out there, he had to do something to bring that to the States. And as he learned through learning the history of Brooklyn, rediversify brewing in America. Not just in the styles of beer, but also with the people. Fast forward to today, and Garrett has been the brewmaster at Brooklyn Brewing for over 30 years. And we all know that Kraft has absolutely reintroduced and also created a lot of the different styles. And to address the lack of diversity in the people in brewing, Garrett is also tackling that through the Michael James Jackson Foundation. They are an organization that funds brewing education scholarships to black, indigenous, and people of color. And ever since 2022, Athletic has been proudly supporting the Michael James Jackson Foundation with the sale of our annual beer in honor of Black History Month, Soul Sour. It is a fierce fruit-forward, sour brew, where 100% of profits are donated to organizations like MJF. If you want to try Soul Sour, that sounds interesting to you. It's one of our most popular brews throughout the year. It is available at athleticbrewing.com right now, but I would jump on it. I'm not just telling you that because I work here. I would jump on it because it's going to sell out soon. It is a lot of people's favorite brew, and I'm just telling you, because if you don't get it now, it's going to be a long wait. But we wanted to give you a little bit of insight behind what this brew is, the inspiration for it, and also some of the people behind it and where this money goes. So we're going to sit down and talk to Garrett today. He's an absolute legend in brewing, so this is a huge honor. And he's just such a great storyteller, so engaging. I know you're going to enjoy it as much as I did. Let's get this thing going. Garrett Oliver, welcome to uh, welcome to Without Compromise. How you doing? I'm doing great. Good to see you, Mason. Uh, you as well. You as well. You know, I, I was really excited doing the research for this. There's so much I want to ask you about. Um, but, you know, I, I try to ask new questions, especially to people who've been interviewed a thousand times like you have. Uh, but I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to just because we've got to set up some some basics. And I want to know what got you into brewing? What were some of those earliest memories around beer, around brewing and around pursuing this path? Well, my earliest memories around beer were, I would say, unpleasant. Okay. <laughs> uh, after pestering my Uncle Bill when I was uh, 12 years old, uh, asking him, hey, I want to taste your beer, I want to taste your beer, I want to taste your beer, and finally he handed it to me, and I took a swig and spat it out into the lawn and did not have any beer for some years thereafter. You know, I, I drank beer when I was in college, but the dirty little secret was that we didn't really like it. It was just one more thing that was there. You know, we drank the big brands when we had money because the other brands tasted really bad, which was better than you could generally get. And so it wasn't until I moved to England uh, in 1983 that I discovered that beer could be something flavorful, fascinating, varied, uh, uh, that it could be different from place to place. And really fell in love with it. And then I went traveling all over Europe. I went to Germany. I went to Belgium. I went to uh, what was then Czechoslovakia. You know, I went to Hungary. And I had all these fantastic beers. And then I got back to New York a year later. And they said, Bud, Bud Light, Miller, Miller Light, Coors, Coors Light, Heineken. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> like, I don't want to drink these. I've gotten used to all this wonderful stuff. Where is it? And we didn't have any. Hmm. You're talking about 1984. So I started brewing beer at home, not because I was interested in brewing beer. I was interested in having beer. Uh, and I wasn't interested in having beer that didn't have the flavors that I wanted. So you can imagine, you know, now maybe if you, you know, like a nice sourdough bread or whatever else, imagine if the only way to get a decent loaf of bread was that you had to make it yourself. 
you know, then you probably would. And it was only later, you know, after making beer as an amateur for a while that I really fell in love with it and helped start clubs and all sorts of things. And slowly but surely I fell in. Wow. Well, that that tour through Europe, that was managing rock bands, right? Yeah, I was managing rock bands in London uh, at University of London Union, which I ran. I mean, I've been around a long time, so I, I took Ramones Bowling. I put on R.E.M. as the opening band for the English Beat in 1983. You know, now you talk to the younger kids and they're like, who is R.E.M.? You oh. know, you're like losing my religion. You're like, they're like, no, I don't recognize that song. You're right. like, wow, OK. <laughs> no, I never had a religion. What do you mean? No, they don't yeah, exactly. You know, you're exploring Europe, seeing all this style. Was there anything in the States going on? I'm sure somebody was at least trying to do this, or was it really just still people like you, home brewing? Um, I know I know your grandfather was it was a home brewer as well? Yes, he was. I didn't know that until after he passed. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people during Prohibition, you know, brewed their own beer. Uh, it was uh, pretty common. And I found out from my grandmother that my grandfather had been among them. I mean, in 1984, there were not really any breweries that I can think of out east. Um, you had, uh, you know, obviously you had Anchor in San Francisco. You had uh, Sierra Nevada, which had opened in 1980, but none of these, it would be many years until uh, until Sierra Nevada got out east and Anchor, you might occasionally see here and there. Mm -hmm. um, and really, it wasn't until the late 80s, early 90s that you started to see, you know, Anchor on a regular basis. And then there were one or two shops that might bring in, you know, some uh, exotic things you know, from uh, from Germany or whatever else. So you'd, you'd see double box or, you know, things like that very occasionally. And you had to know exactly where to look for them. So I, I assume at this point you weren't, you know, this wasn't the plan for your career. What, what were you doing? What were you, you know, this was something you were doing at home, home brewing. What was like your trajectory at that point? What were you focused on? Oh, I mean, my uh, my degree is in broadcasting and film. And so I straight out of school, I went to work for HBO. And these were early days of HBO. People forget that uh, MTV was part of HBO at the beginning. And HBO was part of Time Warner. So, you know, all of that has changed. Uh, but at that time, MTV really still played videos. It was music television. And uh, I was really into music. I was really into television and film. And I thought probably my career would be, you know, filmmaking or making videos or something, you know, that 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 put these two things you know, together, you know, because I was running all the entertainment for Ross University at that time, which is how I ended up putting on these concerts. And I ran sound and basically did club nights. So thereafter in New York, I was also making girl, little girl of films. I was, you know, doing club nights. I was running things. You know, uh, uh, when I got back from London, but when I got to London, I was like, this is something I know how to do. That job was available and I took it. When did it become clear that you wanted to pursue brewing in, in more of a professional manner? Was it a slow growth or was it, you know, an immediate happening there? It's like, well, this is what I'm doing now. Or, or did you just kind of look back and say, well, I, I'm a brewer. Sometimes that happens too. No, I mean, it was a slow growth where, you know, it sort of slowly, you know, takes over your life. Um, and it's kind of an interesting thing because, you know, I've always said now this is a, a thing that's changed uh, these days uh, as the younger generation comes in. But, you know, for my generation of brewers, you know, craft beer was really uh, a result of diverted intentions. Nobody who became a brewer in the old days had intended to be a brewer. We all had other careers. We had spent notable amounts of time, money, effort on those careers. Our financial circumstances, you know, generally were tied, you know, to those careers. And so almost everybody who started a brewery or started brewing, you know, back in those days, basically took their degree and what they had planned to do or what they had been doing and threw it all out the window and then stepped out into thin air. Mm -hmm. You know, that is basically what, what you did. 
it's really a matter of falling in love with something. But when you fall in love with a beer, the first thing that happens is it makes you poor, at least in those days, you know, because there was no craft beer market. You know, it's like being a fish and there's no ocean. So first you have to dig the ocean, then you have to fill it with water and then wait for other fish, you know, to to have a community. There was no community. There was no craft beer market. When you showed up with a beer that was different, you know, people basically told you to get lost. What was wrong with you? What, what were some of those early styles in, in craft that you were brewing? Um, what was starting to get traction? Because I'm sure a lot of it was just repelled. Well, I mean, to give you some idea, um, most of the beers that you would have seen were British variants. Lager brewing among, uh, among home brewers was very rare. And Belgian brewing was unheard of. So, you know, basically you saw, you know, amber ales, brown ales, bitters, uh, stouts, etc. The occasional IPA, but you have to remember that really still in, say, 1985, I mean, IPA was a historical British style, which nobody brewed, either really in England or the United States. Uh, to give you some idea, I spoke at an IPA conference in London in 1994 and brought my IPA with me, which is called Rough Draft IPA. 7.2%, probably 50, 60 IBUs, highly dry hopped. And everybody said, well, that's very funny, but no one's ever going to drink anything like that. You know, mo- nobody there had seen any beers like it, and they were highly skeptical. So it kind of gives you some idea of how different things were. Wow. You know, as you got more and more into this and I don't know the steps to like from a career point of view of what made you, you know, eventually take the leap. But what were the people around you thinking about this newfound passion? Was it, hey, you know, Garrett's doing this weird thing over here, you know, great for him, but, you know, whatever. Or were people also very curious, you know, the people around you like supportive of it? What what was kind of your feeling about how those around you thought of this? Oh, people were pretty supportive. I mean, obviously, I, I showed up with, uh, you know, with beer and it tasted a lot better than the stuff that they could otherwise get. So they were surprised not only that you could brew your own beer, but also that, you know, that beer could be something else. They they, they really were not familiar uh, because most people that I ran into had not been to Europe. And, you know, that was where you were going to see these beers. So there was surprise all around. And being a, a brewer was like saying you were a wizard. I mean, <laughs> you know, the idea that you could at home make beer seemed, uh, uh, you know, at least in New York City, you know, seemed to be, you know, uh, uh, an amazing thing. But the funny thing was that there was on the Lower East Side, you know, in the kind of Soho area, um, more Lower East Side of New York City, there was a shop that sold home brewing ingredients, you know, in the 80s. And they had been a winemaking shop, you know, in the edges of Little Italy. So in the days of the late 1800s and early 1900s, when you had uh, huge numbers of Italian immigrants coming in, all the Italians, they made their own wine. And so they needed a shop where they could get all the stuff that they needed to make their own wine in their homes. And over time, as the Italians basically moved out and just became Americans and that, that you know, that tradition went away, they uh, they slowly morphed into a home brewing shop and they were called Milan Laboratories. And that is where I bought all my ingredients for the first few years. Are they still around? No, they're not. But after that, it was mail order. You know, you'd see fanzines of various sorts and people would put in and literally you had to write somebody a letter, you know, and you know, or call them and send them a check. There, there was no Internet. So, you know, everything about it sounds bizarre now, but literally, you know, there would be somebody in the middle of the United States that you would write a check to uh, and mail away for, you know, 10 pounds of grain or some hops or whatever else. Uh, it was a very, very different environment. Yeah, different time indeed. So th- this is interesting because because part of this journey from what I could gather from your story is, you know, you, you are part chemist, you're part wizard, you know, obviously, apparently we talked about that. And I've seen people use that word to describe you a handful of times and just doing more research. 
Uh, you're part storyteller, just with your background. I feel like that was a really natural thing you're doing, but you're also part historian. And, and I think it, it seems like that was a big part of what you were discovering as well, is that Brooklyn used to have all these breweries. There were dozens and dozens, like almost 50 breweries at one time. And so you were beginning to ask the question, well, why is there only this one type of beer now that just basically has different labels? T- tell us about some of those learnings and kind of realizing the context of history you were a part of by bringing craft almost back. Well, you know, it's very interesting. I give talks on this subject and I won't go too deep into it because it goes uh, very deep indeed. But, you know, I think that we don't really realize in many cases that what happened to beer uh, in the United States was part of a trend of something that happened to almost every area of American food. So the short version of it is, you know, when you had the 1800s, you had 48 breweries in Brooklyn. Those 48 breweries made uh, 15% of all the beer in the United States. There were so many IPA and pale ale producers in New York City that there was a New York Burtonizing company uh, that existed just to sell brewing salts to New York's brewers. So think about that. You know, we... We had everything, you know, this is not, you know, we had everything. We had all the beers from the United States, from the United States, but also all the European beers came in. If you read books like Hennius and Wall, you know, Handy Book of Brewing, you'll see, you know, what was available at least to be drunk or to be tested. You know, the United States had by far the most exciting brewing scene in the whole world. Because when you went to Germany, you did not see British beers. You did not see Belgian beers. When you went to England, you did not see, uh, 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 you know, you didn't see things from other countries. In Belgium, you did not see things from other countries. But in the United States, we had everything. Now, I'm not saying that we had shelves full of, you know, full of Lambique or something like that. But we had a very well-evolved brewing scene, lots of lager breweries, Plenty of people who still made things in the British style. Uh, there were breweries that brewed nothing but vice beer in New York City. There were sour beer brewers. So we had that. So then we go into Prohibition. Uh, prohibition was more of an anti-Catholic, uh, anti-German movement than it was an anti-alcohol movement. And so that is an interesting history as well. And, and that's because a lot of brewers were German-based, Right. They were so German-based that in 1920, the meetings of the Master Brewers Association of the Americas were held in German. This is two years after the end of World War One, and, and our industry is having meetings in German. People, pe- there was no way people were going to accept this, right? And that was a big part of it. And so, okay, 13 years later, Prohibition ends. Now, 13 years doesn't sound that long, but the years from from 1920 to 1933 were as different than if you take what, you know, take another, you know, 13 years, uh, 1990 to 2003. Okay, 1990, there is no Internet. It's well before the Internet. By 2003, the Internet is really well established in everybody's lives. Everything's different. That is what 1920 and, and 1933 were like. There were, 1933, there were radio networks. There were networks of highways and trucks and trains. And for the first time, you could, de- you could deliver to everyone in the entire country your product that used to be regional, but now you could get it there and you could speak to everybody at the same time. That was not true any time in history up until that point. And this gave you the rise of the mass market for everything. So people got this idea. What if we were able to get you to forget everything that you'd ever known about a particular food? And then we would sell you one version of it. We get you to forget all the cheeses and all the breads and everything else. And Prohibition provided a perfect uh, platform for this, having wiped people's memory to a certain extent and made people willing to accept anything. And the idea was, we're gonna give you basically one version of every food. So you, when somebody has a company with a name like General Foods, you need to understand that 
their intention was to sell all the food and get all the money. You know, there wasn't like to have like we like to have our part of the market. No, they wanted the entire market. And so all this, all the, all the funky cheeses and things that people used to know, all the different types of bread from Europe that people used to know by the 1970s, it was all gone. There were like three or four or five cheeses that most people had ever heard of. And there were two kinds of bread in the supermarket, white bread and wheat bread. So what we had were facsimiles of things that used to be food. And so facsimiles as food was, that was the world that I grew up in, which I call the matrix. I remember going to my first cheese shop in, uh, in Paris in 1984, and I walked in and there were hundreds of cheeses and the, and, the, and, the, and the shop had this smell to it and whatever else. And literally all I'd ever seen was, you know, shredded mozzarella, craft slices. Like to me, this was cheese and there was blue cheese dressing. You never really saw blue cheese. But I was like, what in God's name is going on here? And I kind of realized all the things that I had been told about food, it, it, like it was, wasn't true. And, the, and, that, and that was the same thing that happened to beer. You know, they took all the different types of beer and, they, and we grew up in an environment where we were led to believe there was one beer. And they had different brands and some were a little bit better than others, but it was fizzy, it was yellow, it was 5% or so, and that was what beer was. So, so you saw this monoculture with not only food, but you saw it firsthand with, with beer, wanted to help bring that diversity back. Did you also notice there was the lack of diversity as far as who was making the beer, not just the styles, but who was making it when you came back? Well, certainly, you know, I, I could not fail to notice that I was, you know, the only African-American brewer, which, you know, almost anyone had had seen. Um, however, you know, I, I, I would say that in many areas of American life, that was and sadly still continues to be uh, to some extent normalized. Right. I mean, I wasn't only the only, you know, black brewer. I was often the only black person that might be eating at a better restaurant by the time I could afford them. Uh, any number of environments, you know, working at HBO, you know, you didn't see any other black people working at HBO. Uh, my father worked in advertising on Madison Avenue in the 60s and 70s. You know, he didn't have any black colleagues, you know, in that environment either. So, you know, there was a normalization, you know, in a way, uh, fortunately, of being just the only one there for a very, very long time. And so the fact that I got used to it does not mean that I didn't notice it. But I, it was not something that I thought, hey, you know, we need to do something about this. I was just plugging my way forward in the career that I wanted to have. What was your journey to making this a profession versus a, a passion that you kept on the side? What, what were some of those major milestones? Well, the really big milestone was, you know, in 1989, I was visiting uh, Manhattan Brewing Company and I knew the brewmaster there, uh, Mark Witte, who had come over from England in 1984, uh, November 9th, 1984, Manhattan Brewing Company opened in the Soho area of Manhattan. And it was the first brew pub or first brewery, I believe, to open, well, not brewery, but the first brew pub anyway, to open east of the Mississippi since Prohibition, you know, 1984. Uh, Mark Whitty had been a senior brewer for Samuel Smith's, you know, in Tadcaster, England. Um, and he came over and started brewing cast-conditioned British beers on the hand pump, which your average American, even average New Yorker, had never heard or, or you know, of or seen. So this was, you know, just like cast-conditioned beer is in England, it was barely carbonated. It was, by American standards, warm, though, you know, we're saying cellar temperature, served, you know, uh, uh, on a hand pump with a swan neck and sometimes a sparkler. And, uh, it was a real sensation. You know, people couldn't get enough. And I went to visit him in 1989 and I said, hey, how's it going? And he said, uh, well, you know, my assistant's leaving. So now things are a, a bit tougher. And just in a flash, I pretty much virtually grabbed him by the collar and said, I want that job. <laughs> now, at the time, you know, I was still doing my filmmaking and running clubs and whatever else. But during the day, I had migrated into a situation where I was working for a white shoe 
law firm, a litigation firm uh, on Prack Avenue. I was in a window office on the 52nd floor of what is now the MetLife building and Park Avenue laid out in front of my office like a runway. You know, I liked my boss. I got paid lots of money. I traveled frequently, uh, not for business, but I was able to, to go and wherever I want. I went to China for three weeks, and which was unusual in the 1980s. You know, I had a pretty good lifestyle. And so when I went to work in brewing, my income dropped by 75%. Oh, gosh. And I went into a room full of boiling liquid with no air conditioning in July. It's like a, it's like you went from that 52nd story building to a cave. Yes. With sounds <laughs> and machinery like a factory. You know, it, it must have been a compelling passion, compelling enough to make that change. Like what what would you what and the people around you must have thought you were crazy. They, you know, they did. They were supportive, but I'm sure they did think that I was crazy and, you know, believe me, within a few weeks of, of having done this, uh, I was definitely not sure that I wasn't crazy. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, I said to myself, you know, I had a college degree and I was making good money and I was traveling, whatever else. And now I've been burned and I've, I'm steamed and, you know, it's 97 degrees in here and, and I'm working my, I'm, and I'm a glorified plumber. I was going to say, what was a brewer in those days? What was kind of the, some of the stereotypes of what brewing as a job was? Wasn't as cool as it is today, right? Well, I mean, it was it was very gritty. You know, we were using old dairy tanks as open fermenters. Uh, so we practiced open fermentation in the British style. I top collected yeast using a, a skimmer that looked like a big kind of somewhere between a pizza spatula and, and a pool skimmer. You know, we practiced kind of old school British brewing the way it would it, would, it wouldn't have looked really any different in the late. 1800s, uh, what we were doing. Tell me a moment or tell me a story or, or, or a reaction you saw by somebody that made you in those early days of making that change that made you say, I've made the right decision. The thing about working in a brew pub, especially in those days where almost everybody who you ran across in the early days was surprised uh, at the things you were making and surprised and happy was, you know, you could come down from your work, you know, actually the brewery was upstairs inside uh, that facility, uh, come down into the pub, you know, I'd wear a, uh, a white lab coat so people would know that I was the brewer. Uh, the fact of the matter was that uh, if you were African American in those days in that environment, and you didn't otherwise set yourself out, people would basically automatically assume that you were a janitor or something of that sort. And so, you know, I wore a white coat so that people would know that, you know, I was the brewer if they wanted to talk to me. And it was very satisfying because it was like, I've never been in a band, but I know people who are in, you know, big bands. And, you know, you, you go into some place and you hear your music on the radio. That's like, that's cool. You know, I went downstairs and my music was on, <laughs> was on every table. And, you know, I, I, I really saw that as a, a great creative outlet. But, you know, you were showing people something brand new to like. And that is an amazing thing to be able to do to this day. You know, I say that's really what we do on a day to day basis. We show people something brand new to like. Um, and uh, if it's not brand new, then, you know, that they have something that, that, that makes their life slightly better every day. Um, and that's an amazing thing. Not everybody gets a chance to do that. And so, you know, this is obviously, that was an extremely pivotal moment in your life, making that change. It's led to 30 plus years uh, of your career, uh, number of books, number of appearances. W when did you start, how early on were, were you also telling stories and, and kind of accessible to talk to people? It sounds like pretty early on with wearing that coat because you, you do such a great job at making what seemed off limits or just so hard to conceptualize, very understandable and very interesting to the average person. When did you start putting those skills together? Well, I mean, look, this is all storytelling. To me, beer is storytelling. Being a chef in some ways is storytelling. I'm transmitting an idea that I have in my head to you so that it appears in your head in a certain way. And with it comes 
comes history and stories and everything else uh, behind it. So to me, brewing is an awful lot like filmmaking. It's half science and half art. And you're trying to tell a story that, you know, is interesting from start to finish, you know, and remains engaging. And that's kind of like what we're, you know, what we're doing. And it is like filmmaking, highly technical. But if you have something that's highly technical and it has no art behind it, you'll end up with, you know, the beer equivalent of like a blockbuster summer movie that two hours after you get out of the theater, you don't even remember the characters and you never really cared about them, you know, and they were not really developed. But look, hey, you know, the, the, the car chases and the actor's teeth and everything else were perfect. And the picture was perfect and the sound was perfect, but there was nothing there. And so to bring some kind of artistry to the technical ability, you know, is the, the thing that we're trying to do in craft beer and what you know, distinguishes us, you know, from industrial brewers. We, this is through athletic brewing. So obviously, you know, there, we, ha- we have an interest in, in non-alcoholic beer and, and the development of it and, and the growth of that part of the, the industry. Uh, when did that get on your radar and what was that kind of realization? Because you, you, you've obviously taken the road less traveled in a lot of ways up to this point. Um, was that, you know, a step too far? Did it seem like a step too far or just, no, this is, this is really interesting. Let's give it a shot. Let's see what's out there. What, what was that, uh, process of taking on that challenge like for you? Well, it was, you know, it was different for us than it was for a lot of people because a lot of people don't realize that Brooklyn Brewery is a very international company. We are in 35 countries um, outside of the New York City area. Our, you know, our top uh, market, you know, is France, closely followed by the UK. Sometimes UK is in the first position. For many years, our, our top market outside of the New York City area was Sweden. And so, you know, in Europe, especially in the Scandinavian countries, non-alcoholic beer for many years has had a completely different meaning than it has had in the United States. And so it was our European partners, uh, especially at Carlsberg who sold our beer. They said, well, you know, this is a big part of the market over here. Would you guys consider this? And we had never thought about it. And it was the first time that we did some market studies and we looked at it we saw that the number one word that people associated with non-alcoholic beer was disappointment and that the attitude towards non-alcoholic beer was completely different than it was in Europe. In Europe, if you saw somebody drinking non-alcoholic, it might mean that they plan to go hiking in the morning. It might mean that they uh, had to drive a car. It might mean they were about to go pick up their kid. It just meant it didn't really mean anything. They might drink you know, be spacing stuff out. They might have a regular beer, then an alcoholic beer, then another regular beer, then an alcoholic, and kind of spread, you know, their consumption out over the course of a long evening. Mm-hmm. But in the United States at the time, I mean, we're talking about only six or seven years ago, it meant that you had an alcohol problem. That was the only thing it meant. Nobody, nobody thought, hey, I wonder if that guy needs to drive or he is like a designated driver or maybe he's planning to do something in the morning. No. You know, it had a stigma attached to it that uh, was very, very clear, you know, in the studies. And uh, it was necessary to break that stigma, you know, in order for the category to work in the United States. I would also say that my personal attitude towards it changed over that time because my attitude was that, you know, look, I'm, you know, I'm 61 years old. You know, I work out every day. I, I'm in, uh, you know, relatively, you know, good shape. You know, I'll go out and walk 10 miles and I definitely enjoy a beer and balance in all things was the way I looked at it. And I am a fermentation person and I believed in my product. And so I had no actual interest in non-alcoholic beer, except as a technical challenge. When it started to occur to me that, wait a minute, this stuff could be useful <laughs> was I, and I'll, I will not forget it. I mean, you know, I do lots of events and traveling and whatever else and trying to stay in shape is, is difficult. So I would be on my way to the gym and, you know, members of my brewing team say it's five 30 and members of my brewing team are at the bar and they're like, Garrett, have a, come have a beer with us. At that point, I have a decision to make. I can either go to the gym 
and take care of myself, or I can have a beer with my team, one or the other. Both are important. You need to do both. Both, both are important, you know, and if I go and have a beer with the team, then I'm definitely not going to the gym. But, you know, I can't bypass them every time and say, hey, I won't hang out with you guys. So once we had, and at one point we had some beers that were like 2.2%, you know, et cetera. I made a, a beer called Black Light. It was like 2.2%. I love that beer. I already had been brewing low alcohol beers, but we couldn't get any traction for them. You know, because I was already in my 40s by the time a lot of these, you know, kids came along. I knew that and I grew up, so to speak, on low alcohol beer. Most of the bitters in England were 3.5, 3.6%, which is a lot different than five. And so I knew that, you know, you made a Pilsner at, you know, 3.4 could be really nice. The non-alcoholic, I could go have a pint, you know, at the bar, you know, with my coworkers and then go to the gym. And that was a revelation. Another revelation really came with the pandemic, you know, when I was at home every day and trying to decide what am I doing for lunch? And, um, you know, I got a half a lime and maybe a little squeeze of, uh, of simple syrup and some seltzer water. And that's what I'm having for lunch every day with lunch. You know, I didn't want to drink sodas or, you know, whatever else. I'm certainly not drinking alcohol during the day. I have work to do. And then I kind of realized, well, this, you know, I have a ham sandwich. And what's great with a ham sandwich would be a beer, you know, and a non-alcoholic beer that tasted great and had no effects, you know, was was the perfect thing. And so the funny thing that people don't know is that special effects was supposed to be the name for our really strong, interesting barrel age program. I always have lots of names for things. And then I kind of realized that special effects would be a great name for a non-alcoholic beer because the special effect of special effects is that it has no effects. <laughs> you know, it's a great name. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of like a magic trick. So yeah, I've, I've had myself as many people have, you know, a, uh, an evolution. And for me personally, non-alcoholic beer is like a, is kind of like a utility drink in a certain way. And you could think of it, whether you want to think of that as functional beverage or whatever else. But I mean, it, it holds a certain place and there's a thing that it does that I would like to have an option to do. And what it meant was just like do more of whatever it was you were planning to do. And that not, you know, not having alcohol as a consideration would allow you to do whatever it was you were planning on doing, you know, and, and not get and not get in your way. And so it's been interesting. That's a great story, just how it personally impacted you and how you you began to realize, wow, this is something I can have. You know, it it adds occasions to my to when I can drink. When you look back on the the history of Brooklyn beer, you realize there used to be so much more diversity, and you began tackling that through your career and and bringing that back through Brooklyn Brewing. But it was 2020 when you started to tackle the people, the diversity of people within brewing. What happened there? Tell us a little bit about kind of the inception of that story. Well, it was a whole whole number of things at once. So in 2019, I first went to an African-American run beer festival, which was then called Fresh Fest uh, and is now called Barrel and Flow in Pittsburgh. And I had been, the previous year, I had been invited to this. And they said, this is an African-American-run beer festival. And I'm like, you know, why would I want to go to that? I mean, there's lots of beer festivals. And I don't need to go to Pittsburgh to go to a beer festival. And it's a Saturday in August when I would prefer to be at the beach. Um, you know, no, I'm not going to that. And people told me, wow, it was really cool and whatever else. And they kept asking me, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go check it out. And my fear, I guess, had been that this was going to be some kind of like weird segregated beer festival. And when I grew up in the 60s and 70s, you know, separate but equal was not what we wanted. We wanted a spot at the table with everybody else. And that's the way I, you know, conducted myself and my career and everything else. But what I saw at that beer festival was, one, the most diverse beer festival I'd ever seen when it came to people. Uh, yes, there was maybe 70% African-Americans, but that meant 30% of everybody else. And I had never seen 30% of everybody else anywhere before. Uh, it was mixed in every way that you could imagine. And everybody was just so happy. And I was like, wow, this is like a revelation that, you know, this really could be for everybody and that we're missing out 
on something. And then Tom Potter, who had been one of the founders of Brooklyn Brewery, uh, now has New York Distilling Company with my friend Alan Katz. He was also the president, the last president of the American Institute of Wine and Food. So in the 90s, the AIWF, together with the beer writer Michael Jackson, started the Michael Jackson Scholarship Fund. And there had been a scholarship fund, and maybe they had awarded a couple of scholarships, but AIWF eventually became defunct. You know, that space was taken over by people like James Beard Foundation. And there was still $35,000 in this account. And Tom came to me and said, would you help me uh, disperse this $35,000 and give away these scholarships? And I said, yes, I'll do it, but only if it is aimed at least you know, partially towards people of color. And at first Tom was like, well, you know, it's not really the way it works. We, you know, give it to a school or, and they would decide or something like this. I'm like, no, if I'm going to be involved, I, I want it aimed in this way. Cause I was starting to see, especially after Fresh Fest, I was starting to see, it's like, there's an opportunity here for everybody. And, you know, we're, we're not doing what we need to do in order to make this happen. And I was becoming, becoming sensitive to the fact that, you know, we had never seen, you know, people of color in any real uh, numbers uh, in craft beer in any way. And so when we got into the pandemic, obviously, we all had a lot of time in our hands. And then you had the murder of George Floyd and you had a number of things happen. And I had already been thinking about whether or not this $35,000 could be built into a foundation and an ongoing thing. But I have to say that probably if the pandemic hadn't happened, I would not have had the time to be able to get my act together to do that. Because, you know, I have like 10 international trips a year. You know, it's a, it's a very, very busy lifestyle. So having the time, you know, to do it forced was part of the mix as well. And I said to Tom, you know, if you would donate that money into uh, this organization as seed money, uh, I would build this into a foundation. And uh, we announced it in July of 20. And we had our first board meeting in October of 20. And now we are on our sixth cohort uh, of awardees who will be announced shortly. We have 38 awardees so far. So we have people in every major brewing school, people at UC Davis and uh, at Siebel and at Harriet Watt in Scotland, et cetera. And what the MJF does is we provide scholarships for technical education in brewing and distilling because one of the major barriers you know, to people of color uh, uh, in brewing and distilling is the uh, lack of access to the more intense education that you really need if you are going to become assistant brewmaster or brewmaster. Many people, they may have a job, but when it comes time for, you know, for advancement and they don't really know how to affect the fermentability of work, uh, they don't know, you know, how can you calculate an IBU? They don't know how to do lab work. They may have been taught by rote how to brew and they may be good at it, but that doesn't mean that you can be brewmaster or assistant brewmaster. What do these educations cost? $5,000, $6,000, $10,000, $15,000. But we live in a country where African-Americans, for example, have 10% of the family assets of European-Americans. Uh, and if you find the number unbelievable, you know, I would tell people, look it up. 10% uh, of the family assets. And this is for well-known historical reasons. And as a result, when it's time you say, I want to go take a, a brewing course and it costs $8,000, nobody you know has $8,000. Your parents can't give it to you and your uncle can't give it to you. There's nowhere to get it. And so we're taking people who have already proven themselves in some way, and they're maybe in low earth orbit, so to speak, and they want to go to the moon and we provide the fuel. You know, everything else that they will need, they're going to have to do themselves. You know, we provide mentorship and we'll help you make connections. But really, I mean, these people have uh, have pulled themselves up and they just need the financial ability uh, to get to where they're going. 
And there are many paths that, that are going to bring diversity into brewing. And this is only one of them. Um, we, we are removing one barrier. Other organizations will remove different barriers, you know, and hopefully over time, you know, we're going to, you know, see this make a difference. But we're, we're really, really proud of our people. And, uh, you know, they're out there making a real impact. To give you some idea, in one year, we sent more people through Siebel Institute, probably the best known brewing school in the country, more people through Siebel of color than had been there in the entire previous 10 years. Wow. Immediately impactful. Yeah. I mean, one of our guys, uh, he applied to us. He was working at a small brewery in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. That's how far he had gone to find himself, you know, a brewing job. And he's working in Ho Chi Minh City, American citizen, wanted to go to UC Davis for master brewers, required some prerequisites, uh, became an awardee of MJF. You know, we paid for him to go to UC Davis. He took his prerequisites, moved back to California, went through UC Davis. And now a year, a year and two months after he was in Ho Chi Minh City, he became a brewer for Russian River Brewery, where he is absolutely flourishing. Incredible. That's fantastic. So, you know, how does this feel seeing this part of brewery also diversifying, not just the fact that craft in in all that has been established is bringing back, frankly, bringing back a lot of the things that existed and also creating newness, but also opening up brewing to, to new spaces. Yeah, I mean, it is re rewarding. And I think that another thing I want people to realize is that, you know, brewing is a very strong African tradition. Every African society, north to south, east to west, uh, you know, some of them have had that history you know, interrupted by religious practice or whatever else. But beer is central to every traditional African society and remains so. You know, everywhere you go, people have their traditional forms of beer and they've had them for thousands of years. So the idea that we have been given, which is that beer is somehow European, is just simply not true. It's never been true. No, the fact is that the styles of beer that we are familiar with and that we have made commercial are European styles. But, you know, when you get to China, you find out that, you know, there are all kinds of beers that have been made by Chinese hill tribes, you know, for, for a thousand years, and you've never heard of them. You know, the same way that most people have not heard of Korean makgeolli or, you know, don't know about shochu or whatever else, or starting to discover mezcal. You know, there are, you know, there's a, it's a big world. This is going to be overall great for craft beer because, uh, you know, you look at the United States, if you're selling beer only to people of European background, that means you're selling beer to what, 55, maybe percent of the population? You're leaving 45% out? And that's growing, you know, over and time. And growing. So, you know, I mean, if you want to talk about a really bad business proposition, you know, like, you know, and then, you know, if you go further than that and you're really only trying to sell beer to, to men, you know, then you're down to what? Like, you know, maybe you're like 27% of the population you're trying to sell to. That's just really bad business. And finally, what I find is that when everybody, you know, uh, in the room looks the same, there's a level of tension there, which is not there when you have you know, a mixed group of people. And, you know, uh, if I, what I say to people who are of European background, I said, well, you know, if, if you want to know why we want to see more diversity, try this on for size. Uh, you love craft beer. You know, you think it's really terrific. But every time you wanted to go to a craft beer bar, when you went in there, everybody else was black. And when you walked in the door, people turned around. When you got to the bar, they maybe acted like you didn't know anything, you know, about beer. You know, and this is your you've come from work, you've worked hard all day, and this is where you've come to relax. And this is what you're dealing with, you know, and if that sounds like, well, you know, that makes the, the idea makes you uncomfortable. Well, there's a reason why it would make you uncomfortable, because it's weird. Like, you know, it would be weird for you to walk into that situation. And it is equally weird for us to walk into that situation. And so the reason why you don't see people show up in there. You know, is like, well, we're all very welcoming. Well, people walk in the door and they're like, 
this is a hard thing emotionally to deal with. Where is everybody? Once you start hiring people uh, in the brew house, et cetera, then they're going to bring their friends and family and whatever else in. And over time, you will see tap rooms that look like America. Well, you're doing a great job. So usually I ask, uh, you know, a little bit about you and your daily habits and whatnot, but I'll jump to the end because you've shared so much and this is awesome. Uh, On each of our cans, I told you a little bit about this before. It used to say brew without compromise, Uh, but we realized you really need to just live without compromise to do anything at all outside of the box or on the road less traveled. Um, Your life has done that. You're still doing that. What would you say living without compromise means to you? It means that like, you know, everything, uh, the world and everything in it, you know, is mine, my patrimony, you know, my place. I belong everywhere, everywhere that I want to be. I I am equally comfortable in a dive bar and in a castle. When the time comes for, you know, a great experience, I have the temperamental ability to know when to drop everything and take that opportunity. About 10 days, I'm going to uh, Tanzania and Zanzibar. Uh, a friend of mine, and he said to me, like, you know, out of the blue, hey, send me a text. You want to go to Tanzania? And, you know, and I had plans for that period, but I'm like, yep. <laughs> you know, drop everything, you know, and 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 go do this, you know, because, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be eating probably in people's houses and stuff. You know, not at fancy restaurants. We're going to have experiences that we otherwise, you know, wouldn't have. And so the fact that I have an opportunity to do this and to have the experiences that I've had, the fact that, you know, in the last five years, I've been to 27 countries. I only know that because uh, I had to reapply for global entry. And they ask you, what are all the countries you've been to in the last five years? And I have to add them up. And I'm like, yeah, that that's part of what it means to me to to live without, you know, without compromise, you know, but I think living without compromise doesn't mean living without balance. You know, I have not cut out what uh, some people would call debilitating pleasures. You know, I, I eat butter. I do eat sugar. You know, I do consume alcohol, but, you know, I'm able to do that uh, uh, in a balanced way that makes my life better. And everybody's going to have their own set of choices. So, you know, what could strike you as a compromise in that area? I'm like, well, no, that's just that's just balance. You know, compromise is when you decide that you're not you're going to end up having a less pleasurable life, (laughs) you know, as a result of something. Uh, My life is not less pleasurable because of balance. It's better. You can learn more about the Michael James Jackson Foundation at themjf.org. You can also find out more and try Soul Sour by going to athleticbrewing.com, where you can see at least a dozen of our brews available right now. At the time of this recording, I'm seeing 15 on the website. So go check it out. 